Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gitler. And this is episode 14 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 5th of May. And Leon, we're talking to Grant Barker of State of Matter, the change manager man. That's right. Grant Barker is a management consultant. He's the project manager from the consulting firm State of Manor. And he's going to be talking to us all about trends and what organisations need to do to keep up with them. That's good. And then beyond that, we've got Nicholas Gruen, the economist and far-sighted thinker. That's right. And he's going to be talking to us all about the RBA and it's going to be a fascinating chat. Yeah, they're absolutely fascinating. So anyway, now let's listen to Grant Barker. We're talking to Grant Barker, who's the Practice Manager, Advisor and Project Delivery for State of the Matter, and they're experts in change management. So uh, welcome, Grant. Tell us a bit about State of Matter. Yeah, State of Matter is about 16 months old. We're a uh, sort of startup, I suppose, in the, in the consulting space, formed by guys who have a lot of experience in the, in the top end of town, large consultancies, but looking to really change the back to I suppose back to the, the basics of, of consulting saying you know, a lot of it has lost its way so getting back to really helping clients achieve business outcomes that's our that's our goal um, and not to place ourselves in clients long term and people trying to figure out why we're still in there so that's really sort of the at the the core of why we were established um, we've been very successful in that time obviously uh, there's a market there which we've recognized we've gone after and uh, we're doing well so far What's your market? Uh, our market is both um, the top end of town, so large organisations, um, enterprise level, where we tend to focus on our delivery and change management capabilities, um, as well as sort of the mid-market. So small, medium enterprises up to about five, 6,000 people type enterprise, where we, have a, we focus a lot broader than that, so from change management strategy type work through to um, project delivery, etc. What are the big issues now facing companies when they confronted with change management they've always struggled with it yeah i think it, it's interesting i think there's we're seeing companies a starting to recognize that they've neglected change management so i think that's the first thing that they recognize that they haven't really been doing it and the challenge that in particular they're facing is it got sort of pushed into a, a mode of change management either was just code for training or it was code for communications so you had a look at change organizations both external within companies a lot of the stuff they did was communications or training and even some of the big um, implementers around the place tend to actually communicate that as that so the challenge is really moving into the human element of saying what is the change management truly and when you look at what's termed transformation and the large a lot of the transformation is technology related that's the bit that's overlooked nine times out of ten what is focused on is training. So there's a training plan, there's a comms plan, why are we doing that? But the hundreds or thousands of people impacted by that change and need to take them on a journey. And if you really look at it, that's where the benefits are being realised. You know, the technology is one thing, but if you're expecting a vast improvement in sales, in your customer service, in your supply chain cost, when you look at it, it's the people using it and using, thinking differently, reacting differently, which is critical to actually achieving the benefits you're trying to achieve. So to neglect that and a change aspect is actually 
quite quite damaging to the success of any investments you're making. For a company to take advantage of change management, though, the management itself, doesn't it need to be observant and even forecast changes in its market, changes in its customer base? Oh, quite quite correct. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when we look at change management, there's we also look at it from how's the organisation attuned to its external environment. So it's from its, its direct market as well as changes beyond that, whether it be regulatory or are there players outside who are going to disrupt? So how attuned are they to that? What does that mean to how we have to change as an organisation from a business model perspective? And then translating, what does that mean in the way our people and the way we think and react as an organisation? Does that mean organisations need teams there sort of monitoring the changes that are happening in the market? I think some organisations do have those types of teams and, and do, you know, they may be called the strategy, you know, the, the corporate strategy or a strategy department. Um, sometimes it sits within the marketing function. So some of them do have that. But what's important is how to make that part of the DNA of the organisation. Every person, especially people with customer supplier contact day in and day out, are the best source you have as an organisation of that type of intelligence. What's going in the market? What are people wanting? As well as the more strategic, wider view of things. The issue with change management has always been, though, about making that part of the DNA of everyone in the organisation. And a lot of companies struggle with that. How should they go about it? Well, I think the first thing is it does start with the clarity of vision and purpose. And I'm using that as rather than saying strategy, because strategy ends up sounding like plans, etc., which are important. But what's the purpose of the organisation? How does that look differently in, in, the, in the future and how is that going to evolve? Then taking that, so what do we need to achieve that purpose and what are the capabilities we need? And capabilities, once again, here, not talking about people's skills, but the combination of capabilities, the people you have, the technology, the finance, you have a whole bunch of things. So thinking, what are the capabilities we need to achieve that? And as soon as you start doing that, then you see, oh, look, people are an important part of that. And it's not just about us communicating what our five-year vision is. It's helping people understand what's the change in behaviours. So at the end of the day, change and people is about changing their behaviours. What are the behaviours you're expecting? How can I as leadership start displaying those behaviours? What do I need to put in place to help people change those behaviours? They may be metrics, which drives the way people may be acting, but there may be other things as well. In fact, it's most likely to be other things. A lot of each organisation has its own different DNA from the past about what makes people do things differently. Now, is it is it money? Money plays a role, perhaps. Is it the metrics, how you, you drink? Is it just their passion for certain things? So understanding that, leveraging that to change behaviours is really that key to bridging that gap. It's not just training. Training won't change behaviours. It'll change the way you do things. It's not about necessarily about just talking about the way people are remunerated. That's going to drive... It's that end-to-end, how are you driving the behaviour? What are you expecting in terms of mindset, behaviours from people and taking them on the journey? So a company that has got in its sights the idea that change needs management and it's sort of projecting that and one of the problems in business these days is to hire talent. Yep. So if you find a really smart guy, is it the case that he'll look at the organization and say, these guys are still behind the eight ball, I don't think I'll go there, because he's not looking for money as much as he's looking for maybe status, satisfaction in his job, and things like that. It's a, it's a very good point, and, and you'll see, you see that in a lot of organizations who are established, you know, been around for quite a few years, that they're competing for talent in that space, you know, and it's, it's often to do with the customer experience or the technology space they're competing with a plethora of 
other smaller business, more dynamic, more interesting out there. So yeah, people will be looking at that. But it's interesting. Um, I've also worked with organisations. We've worked with organisations where they've able to attract those those people because it's not the technology or the latest thing. It's it's that idea of purpose. So if an organisation can truly communicate a real sense of purpose, clarity about this is how we're going about it, this is how you fit into that model, that makes people excited. So it addresses what you've just mentioned, people getting on board to do that. And so you find traditional organisations able to, to uh, attract top talent to an industry where you think that's not necessarily the most exciting of industries. You know, it could be anything from paper manufacturing through to packaging or, or other sums of logistics organisations but they attract the talent because there's a sense of purpose that people can relate to and that's a lot more important than the monetary. I'd imagine though this would be quite an issue though with uh, smaller to medium-sized organisations because the larger organisations like for example banks Hmm. and telcos are quite across the issue of change management. They've been doing it for years and years and years in varying degrees of success. Mm. But smaller organisations have never gone down that direction and they don't necessarily have the skills in that area. What What's required there? Well, I mean, that's partly why an organisation like State of Matter exists because what we do provide are those change management skills for the period that is required. So especially you can break into two things. How do you make change as an integral part of what you do day in, day out? Change is not something that happens today. We've done it and we move on. It's how do you breathe that into the DNA of the organisation. But usually we find with the small, medium, sort of mid-sized organisations, they have a period of dramatic change that needs to be gone through where they don't have the internal skills to do that. Um, that may be we've acquired new businesses, we need to integrate them. It may be that we need you know, to push more hard into digital, we've neglected it. Uh, we need to push into new markets. So that's where um, working with them to actually you know, work with the skills to help make the change and then become how do you make that part of the DNA so ongoing that you sort of as the organisation it's inherent and everyone's thinking of moving forward so so first of all sort of overcoming that hump of dramatic change or significant change that happens to happen over a period of time and then working and sometimes you know it'll be in going and coaching reviewing just as a sounding board the way things are are progressing but how do you make that change no longer being something that happens at the point in time it's an ongoing phenomena. So the old, old general manager who was a martinet and stomped through, in education has discovered this where you have, you no longer have the a sage on the stage, you have the guide on the side. But relationships between top and middle management and the people they depend on, in other words, the workforce, um, would become even more important in a changing environment, wouldn't it? Definitely, definitely. I mean, the and you see that in organisations where that's been lost, you know, you, that that strong connection between top leadership the middle leadership management and and the people you know further down the organization absolutely essential but the then that's i suppose that's the that's the advantage that small medium um, sort of mid-sized enterprises have that is not a very lot of depth you know the big end of town big organizations they have multiple layers of bureaucracy and management so there's a great opportunity there for these organizations to actually utilize that strength of very little distance between top leadership and the customer at the end of the day and really make change happen so in conclusion that would mean that real change management lies will, could be actually be driven by small to medium sized businesses yeah. and that would flow through the economy Exactly, and you can see that today. I mean, have a look at startups around the world and in Australia. Where is the economic activity happening? These are small enterprises. There's a, you know, that's the, the dynamo. That's 50% of the Australian economy at least. Grant Barker, thank you very much for an interesting interview. Thank you. Well, there's a lot of change around. There's some changes that uh, we'd like and some changes we don't like, and uh, take Grant's advice and it's going to be easier, I think. 
I think so. I think so. But the question is whether organisations are ready to do that, particularly uh, government organisations. That's right. Generally speaking, people don't like change anyway, even though it comes upon them. Uh, you can tell that for the newspaper industry. That's right, indeed. Well, I guess that's what keeps state of matter in business. Yeah, indeed it does. Okay, now, Nicholas Gruen and really a great idea. Nicholas Gruen, you have the idea of turning the RBA into a people's bank. What exactly would that entail? So we've had lots of talk about a people's bank and the way a people's bank is usually conceived of is to simply start another bank along with the 10 or so we've got um, and the four big ones and we end up with another presumably big one, this time funded by the government. I think, I mean, that would add somewhat to competition and it wouldn't. I'm not against it, but it doesn't do very much. It seems to me that in the age of the internet, we should be asking much bigger questions about the way in which the whole architecture of the banking system is set up. The whole debate about banking is somehow a little skew-if, in my opinion, because banking is not like making cars or lots of other things, a normal industry in which governments make the rules and then private uh, firms compete with each other and the best performing one wins. Banking is a public-private partnership and uh, that public-private partnership has a public institution at the apex of the system. In Australia, it's called the Reserve Bank of Australia, but in every country, this is the way banking is set up with a almost invariably government-owned bank at the apex of the system. And the system doesn't work without it. And uh, it is what I call the wholesaler of liquidity. So it sits behind every bank, allows maturity transformation to take place. That's the business where we lend short term to the bank and it lends out long term. Well, that obviously raises the question of a bank run. And the central bank sits at the background as the lender of last resort and the node through which payments can be made from one bank to another, which is what enables you to make a payment to me if we bank with different banks. And so given all that, if we're talking about a people's bank, we already have one. It's called the Reserve Bank of Australia, the central bank. But it's a very intriguing kind of setup because it certainly doles out favours, but it doles out favours to the commercial banks. And in the age of the internet, we can change that. In the age of the internet, just as Amazon competes with book publishers, just as Qantas competes with travel agents, they do that over the net and they do that directly. Nowadays, it's very common for wholesalers to have a retail offering in the market over the internet. And that's what I'm suggesting the Reserve Bank do. So Westpac has got an exchange settlement account with the Reserve Bank with which it can pay ANZ. You and I should be able to have an exchange settlement account with the central bank through which you can pay me or I can pay you if we've got savings with the central bank. We should be able to park funds there just as Westpac or NAB can and receive some interest. And if we can provide sufficient, adequate collateral, we should be able to borrow money just as Westpac or NAB uh, can. And if you follow the 
logic of that very simple argument for competitive neutrality, you end up with a revolution and a real bit of microeconomic reform, which I reckon would be worth something between 2 and 3% of GDP. Now, I'm assuming people would get internet access to this uh, People's Bank services. Correct, just as you do with Westpac. So you would have an account and you would log in. That's how it would work. That's exactly what would happen. And and you would find pretty quickly that it would be much better to bank with the central bank than with Westpac. You'd get more interest. And when you pay someone, you don't have to take any risk that the bank goes broke between the time you pay the person and the time they get the money. In fact, that would be instant. The other thing I'd say is that one of the parts of the design of this idea is that I would like to see the Reserve Bank provide the architecture and private competition be available to provide as much of this as possible. So you might find that the actual IT uh, connection with a bank API, which I can explain in a minute, might be provided by Google or Apple or Telstra or Westpac or somebody like that. Right. Now, what's, how, how about the idea of a central bank issuing digital currency? Yeah, well, I think that that's an interesting idea. I haven't built that into my proposal, but my guess is that that's an extremely good idea. Uh, the Bank of England published a paper last year, I think it was. I actually gave a presentation to the Bank of England. I think it was in 2015 when I published this in a uh, paper in England. Uh, and we've subsequently gone on to publish papers which are the sort in you could argue two different sides of the same coin they put out a paper suggesting uh, they weren't suggesting the central bank should do it they were just looking at the impact of the central bank doing it and they proposed that the bank of england initiate a digital currency and run it and their finding was that this might generate benefits of 3% of gdp a huge microeconomic benefit. Now, actually, I've said the Bank of England, it's, it was two Bank of England researchers, uh, one of whom is an Australian. So it's wrong to say the Bank of England endorsed this, but the, it was Bank of England research that promoted it. Uh, so it's based on their modelling that I'm making the claim that what I'm proposing is worth something of the order of 2 and 3%. Together, they would be worth a little more, uh, but there's a fair bit of double counting in comparing the two ideas. Now, what, the interesting question is, what impact would this have on the other banks who are suddenly facing competition from a central bank? Leon, there would be blood in the streets, and this is the reason why, if you were a politician, you would regard this proposal as radioactive. It would drain the swamp, it would drain the rent, the extraordinary amount of rent that the banking sector enjoys away from the banking sector, and it would transform the banking sector. So I would imagine that about half of the banking sector's assets would migrate from the commercial banks who do very little and then put a margin on their products, which most of which are very low risk. I'm thinking of housing loans of under 65% loan to valuation ratio. They market these things that are at a markup of about 300 basis points or 3%. I'm arguing that a much more realistic cost-reflective markup would be, for a central bank, half a percent. If you got your mortgage out 
five or ten years ago, you're still paying it off. Your loan to valuation ratio is going to be 65% or less. Are you going to get it from Westpac, who's currently charging you 4% or so, or a bit less, uh, if you're lucky? Or are you going to get it from the central bank that will charge you a little more than 1.5%. It's a bit of a no-brainer. So there'd be a very substantial change in the market in precisely the kind of way that we've seen such a huge change in a range of different digital industries like the distribution of movies, media and so on. Now, a final question. Would there be ways that this could actually raise revenues for the central bank and therefore the government? Yes, it would raise a huge amount of revenue uh, because if you just give it a bit of thought, the money in circulation, which is about 100% of GDP, the money in circulation is a public good. It's a little bit like spectrum, radio spectrum uh, following the suggestions of Milton Friedman in the 1960s started to be auctioned off in about the 1980s or 90s. And the government makes quite a lot of money. I'm not sure of the exact figures, but when we do auction off some spectrum. We make billions doing that. What banks do is banks create money. Private banks create 97% of the money in our system, and then they charge interest on it. It's a nice job if you can get it. Essentially, what would happen is that the money that is lent out by the central bank, it would charge interest on. Now, Given the very low level of the cash rate at the moment, it would generate, on the back of an envelope calculated, it would generate over $10 billion a year for the government right now. But in more normal times, the interest rate's about three times what it is at the moment, perhaps a bit less than that, but it gets you to about $40 billion a year. So uh, there you go. That's the budget deficit solved. Leon, how's that for a 15-minute conversation? It's absolutely intriguing. And what a great idea. And Nicholas Grian, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. So what do you think, Leon? Oh, look, I think that is so fascinating. I mean, to make the RBA the People's Bank and, frankly, to give the banks some much-needed competition to pull them into line would be fantastic. But uh, then again, as Nicholas Grian says, there'll be blood on the streets if this proposal gets up. And probably won't happen in our lifetimes, but you never know, down the track may be. But it's an idea worth considering. I'll say. Sounds very good to me. Anyway, now the news. Leon, what have you got? Well, Gary, China's economy looks like it's hit another speed hump with factory activity slowing in April to its slowest pace in seven months. The slide in the respective Cajun Purchasing Managers Index showed Chinese manufacturers had started the second quarter with a further slowdown in production and new business growth. The survey found employment had declined at the fastest pace since the start of the year. Optimism among factory managers looking 12 months ahead also hit a low for the year to be well below the long-term average. The PMI declined from 51.2 in March to 50.3 last month. That's marginally above the fulcrum of 50, which separates growth from contraction. So China is something to watch out for, Gary. Yeah, it's hardly surprising, I suppose, when you think about giving the long-standing fragility of consumer spending in the Western world and levels of uncertainty among the 400 million middle classes in China. And then, of course, the Korean crisis isn't helping either. No, it's not. It's not. But being the world's second largest economy and a major driver of the global economy, it is something to watch out for. Now, Gary, 
The Turnbull government's budget deficit next week for the 2016 financial year is likely to be $38.3 billion. That's nearly $2 billion worse than projected five months ago, according to Deloitte Access Economics. Deloitte's twice-yearly budget monitor shows stagnant wages and lacklustre jobs growth have weighed so heavily on personal income tax collections in Australia that they will trim $1.7 billion from official revenue forecasts in 2016-17 and a further $600 million in 2017-18. But the report says last year's surge in commodity prices and the RBA's record low interest rates will help the government's 2017-18 budget record record a deficit $1.2 billion smaller than projected five months ago at $27.5 billion. And that's despite total spending in 2016-17 being $1.2 billion higher than projected in December and $840 million higher in 2017-18, thanks to policy decisions by the government. As you say, it's a surprise it isn't worse. That's right. Anyway. Let's see how the budget goes. Now, the RBA is looking to a pickup in inflation. It left the official cash rate steady at 1.5%. And in his notes, RBA Governor Philip Lowe said the global economy had lifted and growth in Australia is expected to increase gradually over the next couple of years to a little over 3%. And that would push inflation higher. And also, in a sign that APRA's tighter macroprudential rules are clamping down on interest-only lending having an impact, house price rises slowed last month, according to the latest data from CoreLogic's April Hedonic Home Value Index, the index recording a rise of just 0.1% over April. That was the lowest month-on-month rise in capital city dwelling values since December 2015. Sydney house prices didn't move at all in April, while in Melbourne they rose just 0.5%. In Canberra, they fell 2.8%, and in Perth, they slipped 1%. Now, the softer results in Australia's two hottest housing markets dragged down the index. Now, it's quite significant because price rises have been going gangbusters in Melbourne and Sydney. Between July 2016 and the end of March 2017, Sydney property prices surged 11.3%, whilst in Melbourne, they jumped 12.6%. But now it looks like it's coming down a bit. Yeah, and if the inflation's up, it's a fair chance RBA will raise the interest rates and um, we'll see what that does because it won't do much good to the housing market. No, no, no. Well, let's just wait that space. Now, the Turnbull government has confirmed it will build the Western Sydney Airport after Sydney Airport declared it will not take up the option to develop it. The Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, said details of the federal government's plans will be revealed in next week's budget. It's going to cost something like between 5 to $6 billion. The government will have to borrow money to build the airport, and uh, the law requires the airport to be built by a company, and that means the government will have to establish something like MBN Co., which is rolling out Australia's national broadband band network. Now, Sydney Airport said it was declining the offer because it said the risks associated with the development would, in their words, endure for many decades without commensurate returns for our investors. Yeah, well, I guess the uh, government's going to take the load, isn't it? That's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, the government is expecting it's going to generate a lot of jobs and uh, really grow Western Sydney. So let's let's take a look. Yeah. Well, and also Victoria's complaining that this is a sign that... Um, The Turnbull government is pro-Sydney, anti-Victoria. Indeed, indeed. Now, Chinese investment in Australia has surged to its highest point since the 2008 global financial crisis, according to a new report from KPMG and the University of Sydney. The report, demystifying Chinese investment in Australia, found that Chinese companies invested 15.4 billion into Australia last year. The most popular deals were in commercial property, infrastructure and agriculture. Chinese companies invested $1.7 billion in hotel deals across Australia over the last two years. 
And the next most popular deals were in uh, infrastructure. They were followed by agriculture and healthcare. China's investors were less enthused with mining, which dropped to sixth place with deals worth $839 million last year. That's 35% down from 2015. Energy investments exceeded mining for the first time. That accounted for 9% of overall deals. And it's a trend that's seen New South Wales and Victoria getting more Chinese investment than the mining states of West Australia and Queensland. Yeah, lots of muttering about that with populist politicians like Pauline Hanson, of course, that uh, how much it'll change things is yet to be seen. That's right. Now, the big story of the week was about education and students are set to face higher university fees from January next year as part of a federal government's overhaul of the higher education sector. The proposed HEX changes will see graduates repaying their university debts when they earn just $42,000. That's $7,000 above the minimum wage. And Education Minister Simon Birmingham unveiled changes that he described as measured, modest and balanced ahead of next week's budget. As part of the shake-up, student fees would increase by 1.8% next year and continue rising to a total of 7.5% by 2021. And the government argues that changes would mean a price hike of between 2000 and 3600 for a four-year course or an increase of between $8 and $17 per week. The most expensive course, a six-year medical degree, would cost $75,000. And now, at the same time, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has brought back Gonski. He's outlined plans to increase Commonwealth funding from $17.5 billion in 2017 to $30.6 billion in 2027. That's a 75% increase in recurrent spending. He's also directed businessman David Gonski, who led the former Labor government's review of education, to conduct yet another review of the sector. But the funding announcement is less than the amount previously proposed by federal Labor, which state and territory education ministers have been calling for. And the federal government has been locked into a bid of funding dispute with the state and territory governments for years. And next week's federal budget will provide an extra $2.2 billion for school over four years, in addition to the $1.2 billion outlined in the 2016-17 budget. But the question is, how is this going to go down with some of the people in the Liberal Party room? Well, probably not very well. And, of course, uh, the other side, the Labor Party, is complaining that because the Libs have got Gonski on side that uh, the Libs are stealing the Labor Party's clothing. That's right, that's right. And so this is going to be very interesting to watch. But education is a critical issue in Australia. It's a critical issue for the Australian economy. Absolutely, and and we're behind the eight ball a bit right now. That's right. Needs a boost. Now, Australian manufacturing is still going strong. It's climbed 1.7 points to 59.2 points on the Australian Industry Group Australian Performing Performance of Manufacturing Index. Now, that's the seventh consecutive month that the index has risen. It's the strongest monthly result since February 2017. And before that, May 2002. And any reading, of course, above 50 shows the sector is expanding. So that's good. But then again, uh, you've got these energy, you've got electricity prices, and that's cutting into profits. Yeah, you've got to do something about energy. But the, the good sign is that the manufacturers have got over their sort of shock of the Chinese and are beginning to compete and actually doing very well. That's right. That's right. It's a good sign for the future. Now, West Farmers has put Officeworks on the market for its IPO. JP Morgan's research team has placed a valuation on it of $1.14 billion to $1.52 billion, while Macquarie Capital is valuing it as $1.33 billion to $1.52 billion. The valuation from UBS has coming in at $1.46 billion to $1.469 billion. Analysts are tipping sales to grow 5.7% in fiscal 2017 and 2018, with uh, earnings before interest and tax to rise 7.1% this financial year and 6.9% the following year. 
And also, ANZ Bank has reported a cash profit of $3.4 billion for the six months to March 31. Now, the figure was up 23% on last year's cash profit for $2.8 billion for the period, but it was below market expectations. The bank's statutory profit came in at $2.9 billion, up 6%. Noting the credit environment was broadly stable despite pockets of weakness, the bank's gross impaired assets declined 7% to $2.94 billion. New impaired assets slipped 3%. And in a good sign, the total provision of for bad debts edged down to 720 million and the bank reported a 2% decline in costs, a 1% decline in full-time equivalents, and its cost-to-income ratio was 44.8%, down from 46.8% in the previous corresponding half. So the uh, CAD has done a really good job. Yeah, I think that's right. However, there is an albatross in the rigging, and that's the housing market. If there's a lot of defaults, the banks have got problems. Now, Woolworths has overtaken Coles, posting its strongest sales growth since 2010. The supermarket chain increased its comparable food sales by 4.5% to $9.3 billion third quarter. Australian food sales were up 5.1% to $9.3 billion. Downer has made it clear to Spotless that it will not be increasing its $1.2 billion takeover bid for the company. It says the $1.15 per share offer is final. Now, Spotless has told investors to reject the offer. It's described it as opportunistic, a time to take advantage of the historic Spotless share price, which is at uh, lows. But Downer said uh, Spotless hadn't given it any reason to increase its offer. So it's now up to investors, Gary. Yeah, well, I think it was a bad deal in the first place all round. Now, the other big piece of news is that Fairfax Media is slashing its metropolitan newsrooms, cutting 125 jobs, roughly a quarter of the newsroom. The job cuts will happen in Fairfax Print Titles, Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, Australian Financial Review. The voluntary redundancies are part of a previously even out $30 million cost reduction scheme. Editorial Director Sean Elmer emailed staff telling them 125 editorial full-time equivalent positions would be cut in the voluntary redundancy program. That included 10 staff that had already gone since the restructure was announced a month ago. Contributors' payments would be capped. They'd be paid per article rather than per word. The use of casuals would be significantly reduced, saving about $3 million a year. And Fairfax staff have walked out and uh, for a week, which means they won't be covering the budget. And that will damage Fairfax's budget coverage. Yeah, and I, I think at this point, as far as Fairfax management is concerned, the whole show's up for sale. Come in bidders. That's right. Well, all of this comes at the same day that Fairfax announced job cuts in New Zealand after the New Zealand Commerce Commission said it won't allow Fairfax Media to merge with NZME. The regulator said the merger bringing New Zealand's two largest newspaper networks and corresponding online news sites under common ownership would result in massive concentration of ownership, and that would be a bad thing. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. That's great. And uh, next week, we've got an interview with Anders Sorman Nilsson, a futurist. And, of course, next week is the budget, and we're going to have a great analysis from Stephen Kakoulis, the economist. So don't miss next week. It's going to be really great. That's right. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBIZ or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.